Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. If patients learned more about clinical trials and joined them in greater numbers, we could help the researchers come to their conclusions more quickly. And right now, less than 5% of myeloma patients participate in clinical trials, but 75% of those cancer patients say they would want to. And if we were to double the number, we could dramatically alter the pace of research and cut research time significantly. So a few items of business before we get started with today's show. Um, If you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter to get email updates, you can do that on the homepage of www.mpatient.org. And this week, we'd like to share something exciting that we launched. We have a new site called mylomacrowd.org, and this is the first ever all-inclusive site for myeloma. Now, it's taken me about three years to get really up to speed on this disease, and as a patient, I wanted a place where I could find all of the good being done in the world of myeloma on a single site. So here you can find information about diagnostic testing, myeloma trials, patient support groups, what to eat during treatment, um, and really links to all the best news, all the best foundation work, and everything that's being done in the world of myeloma. Now, the Facebook groups that we created are listed here as well, and these new groups include subset of patients with your same genetic markers. So, for example, you, there is a 414 group and a gene 13 deletion group, and we encourage you to join those so you can chat with others of your same disease type because as we've been told, myeloma is not a single disease. Now, one more item to all those of you who cannot remember what you were going to ask your doctor at your next appointment. We now have a free smartphone app called MyDocNotes that's available in the Apple and Android stores that lets you jot down text notes or voice memos to remember your important questions and can take notes during your visit in text or with a recording. And I just used this in my first appoint- in my last appointment, and it was the first time I've left really feeling like I remembered everything that I wanted to cover. Now, on to our show for today. We are very privileged to have with us Dr. Damian Green of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, who is working on many exciting things, and not just to control myeloma, but to potentially eradicate the disease altogether. So welcome, Dr. Green, and thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'd like to give an introduction for you, if I can, before we start. Dr. Damien Green is an assistant member of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and assistant professor in medical oncology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Green earned his medical degree from Ohio State, where he also performed his residency. Recently, Dr. Green has demonstrated great success in selectively targeting multiple myeloma cells with antibodies carrying small radioactive particles that can selectively destroy the tumor cells and spare the normal tissue. This breakthrough may translate into a completely life-saving new therapy, and his most recent research findings were just published published in the, the research journal Cancer Research. He's also pioneering a new way to better capture a patient's own healthy blood stem cells to use later for a bone marrow transplant. The new approach is designed to more effectively treat the patient's cancer during the process of collecting stem cells. He joined the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, also called the Hutch, in 2011, 
and has received research awards from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the MMRF, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, and the Moore Foundation. His current research is also supported by a career development award from the National Institutes of Health. So with that, let's um, go ahead, Dr. Green, and talk about your approach to look at myeloma not just in terms of controlling it, but in curing it. Sure. Well, I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm certain is the goal, not just my goal, but the goal of all of my uh, colleagues and research scientists who are, you know, looking for uh, new treatments that will, again, not only effectively control the disease. I think, as probably all your listeners know, we have made dramatic advances in terms of the ability to better control myeloma uh, in the last decade uh, or so. Uh, but that all of us share the goal of trying to find uh, effective uh, ways to actually get rid of every last one of those uh, malignant cells and and cure patients. And I think it's not unrealistic. We can cure uh, patients of their lymphomas. We can cure patients of leukemias, other cancers of the blood and bone marrow. And I think uh, myeloma is uh, it, it, the, the, the time is is now for us to be focused on on curing the disease. Um, so in terms of, and just one, one thing I just want to say in the, about the introduction, thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, I've actually been here in Seattle since 2004 um, oh, I didn't know. At, the, at the Hutch. But yeah, but it, it, I think it's somewhere in there it probably lists, you know, when my, <laughs> it has to do with my, I came here for training and have been here since then. But, uh, but uh, no worries there. And I, and, and I was going to say, actually, I think we, uh, it, it's actually a beautiful sunny day today in Seattle, which uh, may surprise some of the listeners. And uh, I have my blinds down because there's too much sun otherwise shining in on me here. Um, so I'm uh, not to not to test that analogy too much, but to, you know I'm happy to shed some more light on uh, on what we're doing uh, here at the center and what my research is focused on, uh, and in particular, our a major focus in my laboratory is trying to develop uh, novel approaches uh, using immunotherapy, so immune system based approaches to get after and uh, ultimately. Uh, eradicate uh, myeloma by targeting every uh, myeloma cell uh, in the body. So the, uh, the approach that we are taking is using a, a system known as radioimmunotherapy whereby we attach onto antibodies a small radioactive uh, molecule that can then be delivered. The antibodies are uh, specific for a marker or protein on the surface of the myeloma cells, and they basically act as a carrier for the radioactive molecule to bring it and deliver it directly in contact or close, in close proximity to the multiple myeloma cells. So in sort of big picture sense, that's what we do, and it's probably important for me to explain the the rationale for why we are taking that approach. Yeah, um, that'd be great. So I, yeah, so I think first first of all, uh, historically, we know that multiple myeloma is very sensitive. Those malignant tumor cells are very exquisitely sensitive to radiation. We know that for lots of reasons, uh, but one reason that we know that is when patients 
present with a plasmacytoma, a mass of abnormal uh, myeloma or plasma cells, when those cells are not in the bone marrow or elsewhere in the body, and this happens rarely, but it does occur, uh, the, the patients can, in that instance, be cured of their plasmacytoma, collection of abnormal myeloma cells or plasma cells, through the use of external beam radiation. So that, uh, if it's a, at a single site and it's not in the bone marrow and we can irradiate it, and I shouldn't even say not in the bone marrow, sometimes it can be in the bone, but just at a single location, um, we can effectively get rid of every last one of those cells. And that's, and that's well known, and we've known that for a long uh, time. It's used uh, as the standard of care for patients with a solitary plasma cell collection. We also know that among patients who have bony pain from their multiple myeloma, uh, that we can effectively control that pain a very, very high percentage of the time uh, if it's just at, at localized sites and it's amenable, if we're able to use radiation to treat it, radiation can be very effective at controlling the localized pain. It does not get rid of the myeloma elsewhere, but we know it works directly against those cells when we can aim a beam of radiation from outside the body at the myeloma cells in a specific location. So, And there are also studies in the Petri dish and other studies that have all demonstrated that myeloma cells are very sensitive to radiation, more sensitive than normal cells. That's something that we have to, you know, take advantage of in order to preferentially get rid of them and, and, and destroy them. So we know that, and we know other cancers, uh, cancers of the blood and bone marrow in particular, leukemias and lymphomas, are very sensitive to radiation therapy, and we've been able to effectively treat and cure patients using delivered radiation therapy, targeted radiation therapy, um, to those cells. In fact, if we go way back, and I'm in Seattle where the first stem cell transplants were done, stem cell transplant was born here, if you will, and the, uh, the physician who founded our center, Donald Thomas, uh, received the Nobel Prize for his work in developing and really discovering the role for stem cell transplant. Um, and if you look at his very early research uh, here in Seattle, and this has also been done uh, other centers as well, we, we know that if you could, in those days, we're talking about external beams, so radiation from outside of the body beamed in like is frequently done for different tumors, including the bone pain situation I mentioned a moment ago. But anyway, mm -hmm. if, when that radiation is used, um, it can... Uh, uh, at high enough doses, uh, as part of before a stem cell transplant, what we call conditioning therapy, you know, b before the new cells come in, trying to knock out as much of the cancer as possible, uh, there were uh, there was data which showed that uh, the more radiation you gave, the better your chances were for a cure. But the problem was there's just a limitation to how much radiation a person can tolerate, uh, both before the days of transplant and even with the uh, use of stem cell transplant. So that's the ceiling. That was the limitation. And that was partly what informed or what uh, the, got people thinking about, well, how else could we deliver radiation in a more focused way so that we can get more to those tumor cells without doing damage to the rest of the body? And it was that thinking that out of which 
radioimmunotherapy was born. It only really became possible. It was not until the mid-1970s when the first monoclonal antibody, so producing antibodies in the laboratory on large scale that we could deliver specifically against a, a target, two guys, Kohler and Milstein, they got the Nobel Prize in 1975 for coming up with this idea of how we could generate antibodies. Uh, and in fact, at the time, people thought, wow, this is the holy grail, and you know, once we can do that, um, we can use these antibodies to attack tumors. It turns out to be a lot more complicated, but that was the start of a new generation of research where we began to try to harness the power of those antibodies. And really, through the 1980s and 1990s, here at our center, a big focus was in uh, leukemia and lymphoma and uh, developing radioimmunotherapy whereby we could specifically target the tumor cells. So I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for a second, Jenny, and see if you have questions or I, I can tell you more. Oh, I would love to hear more. And I, I guess I want to know how you train those um, radioactive particles to, or you combine them. What's, can you go through the process of how that works? Sure, absolutely. So, so yeah, let me walk you through that with respect to myeloma and what we're uh, and what we're doing. So, uh, the first step in that process, as you could probably imagine, is we have to find a good target on the myeloma cells, and 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 that takes a lot of work to identify what is the best target. The reason it takes a lot of work is because we have to know that first of all, the target is there in large numbers. Um, if they're a very small number of them, it's harder to specifically deliver something through the circulation to those cells that have uh, the, the, the target on them. So a high density, we call it, of, of expressing the, a target that we can go after. And then we also really want a target that is unique to the disease cell so that we're not giving an antibody that is distributing elsewhere onto normal cells. Because some of these targets, while they may be on the disease cells, if there are also plenty of them elsewhere, we won't get a specific delivery system. So we need it to have a high density. We need it to be unique or as unique as possible on those, uh, on those target cells. And we need it to be stable. So once it binds there, it stays there. It doesn't float off, especially when we're delivering radiation. So we spend a lot of time looking at targets in the laboratory, and we've focused on CD38 because it has a high density on the surface of myeloma cells. Uh, it is not entirely unique to those cells, but it is a much higher levels on the myeloma cells than elsewhere. And almost all the other places where it is found uh, is on the surface of other cells from, that are produced in the bone marrow. I'll tell you why that's important in a second, the, the third thing I'll say is it also stays on the surface stably. So we know it stays there, it's high density, and uh, it is there in much larger proportions uh, than anywhere else in the body. And that's the CD38 target that we go after. So first we identify that, that target, say, okay, it's there. Now what's our, what's our next step? And our next step is to uh, develop an antibody or, you know, obtain an antibody that will bind to that target and then attach a radioactive molecule directly to that antibody and make sure that that doesn't change the binding ability of the antibody because it 
could, as you can imagine, maybe the radiation would affect the antibody so it didn't work so well. So we've done all of that to show that, no, the radiation doesn't inhibit the binding and that the antibody can then distribute and bind specifically to the multiple myeloma cells. That's the, the, the sort of, you know, initial development uh, stages. Another important aspect is what radioactive molecule do we use? Because there are more than one. There are a whole bunch of them that can be used, and they have different features. The one that we use for uh, our studies is something called yttrium-90, and the reason we use that specific radioactive molecule is because it has some features that we really like. Uh, one of which is a relatively short half-life. In other words, it delivers its dose of radiation, but it doesn't stick around for very long. So it, its half-life is 2.7 days. Uh, and that means it has ha it's giving off half the radiation two and a half or 2.7 days later, and then another uh, 2.7 days, it's you know divided by another half, etc. So there's less and less uh, ongoing exposure to radiation. There's the initial... Uh, uh, delivery, and that's the most important period. That initial radiation exposure to the cells is when you get your most potent effect. So we want it to get there, but then we don't want it to stick around forever. And so yttrium-90 has that benefit. It also delivers its punch over a few cell diameters, not just one. So that if we don't bind every last one of the cells in the myeloma cells with the antibody, that's okay because if we've surrounded its, the myeloma cell's uh, colleagues, if you will, with the radioactive antibody, we get a crossfire effect. It delivers radiation into the cells surrounding the one that we have targeted. Uh, people, I think, sometimes have a hard time picturing this, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of receptors uh, on these cells, or at least, any, well, I should say anywhere from, you know, 10,000 to two, 300,000 targets on every one of these cells. Um, but it, it, that, just, that just gives us a big target where it increases the chances that we can get the antibody there with the radiation, have it deliver the radiation into the cell right there and across, you know, to cells surrounding or nearby. Um, and can I ask a ahead. question? I, from what sure. I understood, CD38 is present... For many myeloma patients, is it present for all myeloma patients, and are you using the FISH test to find that, or what test are you using to find the CD38? Yeah, so 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 I'll answer to both of those. So first first of all, with respect to whether it's there on all myeloma patients, I will say virtually all myeloma patients. I say that because um, we have looked at this and we've seen expression of CD38 on all the patients who we have looked at. Other centers have as well. In fact, the University of Arkansas published their pathology group uh, some years ago. They looked at over 300 patients and they reported 100% expression. Uh, in other words, 100% of those patients had CD38 and the vast majority of them had high levels of CD38 on all of their uh, myeloma cells. And that is consistent with what we've seen uh, here and I think in, in generally accepted. In fact, CD38 and CD138, those two markers on the cells are, are universally accepted as being almost always expressed. I won't say always. Some place in the literature or some researchers will say 95 plus percent, but we see them in virtually every uh, one of these uh, myeloma cells. 
So it's there, I think. And the way that we see it, though, is not by fish or, or cytogenetic studies. We actually see it on the surface of those cells um, by uh, flow cytometry. So basically the cells are, are, are squirted in a very fine uh, mist. A sing single cells at a time get fired across a laser. The laser bounces light off the cells and can detect what's on the surface of them. Uh, and so CD38 has a unique there's a unique way that we can identify its presence there on flow cytometry. There are other ways, too, something called hist immunohistochemistry. It's a special staining you can do to see CD38. But the most common way is on flow cytometry, and that's done uh, almost uniformly on, on patients. So okay. uh, it's not a specific test. Yeah, go ahead. On the flow cytometry, uh, we were talking to one of the other researchers who said there was a pretty wide variance in the level of detection, some, some flow cytometry, I guess they're done in colors, and some are 8 and some are 12 and some are, I think the Spanish group is using 23 color flow cytometry. Yeah. And so can you explain the difference and then how somebody would know if, if it's, um, a patient would know if it's getting to the right level of testing for them? We've been talking sure. a lot about testing. Well, yeah, well, I have to say that from the get-go, I'm not an expert in pathology or flow cytometry, but I can tell you that it is true that some centers uh, do, you know, 12 colors, 16 colors, more than 20 colors. In fact, our group here in Seattle at the Hutch, uh, we uh, have a world-renowned flow cytometry expert here who does an amazing job with uh, what we call multicolor high levels in, in the 20, I can't give you the exact number of, uh, uh, of color flow, but it's in that, in that 20 range. That can be very useful to pick out certain uh, 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 nuance in, in, in various diseases, looking for uh, very subtle findings, maybe very, very low levels of disease, looking for uh, a whole bunch of different things at once. But for the purposes of our discussion, in fact, it, it, one does not need that those large numbers of you know of colors to detect CD38, let's say, or really for any standard flow cytometry. For research purposes, there can be a role for that. But mm -hmm. for the listeners, I wouldn't be concerned or focused on the number of colors in the flow cytometry as a determination about you know is it good enough for my you know diagnostic purposes now i will say that having a very experienced pathologist to review your flow cytometry that is important not just because of you know not related to that color issue the number of colors per se but rather just because they may be more skilled or adept at picking up low levels nuance just because they do this more often i think that's true for anything that uh that we face uh, in in the care of patients with myeloma and other cancers, folks who do things more often will see more, uh, you know, uh, variants and have more experience with that. I'm not saying that everyone has to rush off and see the most expert person all the time. What I'm actually saying is that um, there are certain situations when uh, things are very complex or unclear that it might make sense to pursue that kind of second opinion or judgment for many things. You know, your uh, oncologist, be they at an academic center or in the community, can be excellent and just uh, fine. But in certain cases, when things uh, are not clear, it makes mm -hmm. sense to get additional opinions from those kind of experts. So hopefully that answered the oh, yeah. the uh, 
No, it doesn't. Um, and we, we think it's important for a pathologist to look at your results, too. So we, we interviewed a pathologist on the series, and he reviewed how they can help you review your myeloma labs because they're pretty confusing. <laughs> yeah. Our, our, I mean, I rely on our pathologists. Our pathologists are vitally important to me in the care of myeloma patients. I frequently hear see patients in consultation for second opinions and evaluation, and I am uh, reliant on the outstanding pathologists that we have to pick up nuance or to suggest something maybe a little bit different, because you can imagine that, uh, that it's not unusual for a patient to come here for a second opinion because they're not, you know, there's some concern about what's going on, and, you know, and, and then it's, it's additionally helpful to have our pathologists sort out if there's something unusual on the uh, uh, pathology that they can find that might help us, help guide us to make recommendations. Um, and if I could, maybe, you know, I, would, I just want to go back uh, for a second uh, to the CD38 um, radio immunotherapy. Is that okay, Jenny? I just want to... Oh, yeah, sure, uh, sure. Kind of, I have some follow-up questions it, for you, too. Okay. Um, I, I just wanted to, to sort of round that out by saying that, that so... You know, we got to the point where I say we attach an antibody, we attach mm-hmm. the radiation directly to the antibody to deliver it to the myeloma cells, and we envision using that as part of conditioning for a stem cell transplant, uh, at least initially. The reason I say that is because we have experience doing that with lymphomas and leukemias, and that way we can deliver very high doses of targeted radiation right to those cells and then rescue the rest of the bone marrow, even if other bone marrow cells have some CD38 on them, and so we're getting a little bit of radiation to those cells as well, it's okay, uh, relatively speaking okay, because it, we can still come back in and rescue the bone marrow with a transplant. Uh, and this way, it, through this approach, it lets us give it a lot more treatment in a targeted way to the myeloma cells. So, so at least at first, we envision it in that context. So if you were to do it by itself, you're just worried that you couldn't give enough of it and then you'd have other complications because your body wouldn't recover from, or you'd either yeah. give too low of amount or you'd give too much and then you, the body couldn't recover from it? Well, I think we have to learn more to know what, you know, what effects there might be, let's say, on the bone marrow. Um, and there may uh, certainly come a time where we could we could take this approach without uh, necessitating the the rescue of a bone marrow transplant, um, but I I think that the, having a bone marrow transplant at least initially gives us the opportunity you know or the reassurance that we could rescue and 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 protect the normal cells of the bone marrow or at least have them recover uh, after the targeted therapy, but uh, but I you know in lymphomas for example. There are FDA-approved drugs that target CD20 with radioimmunotherapy and deliver radiation to the lymphoma cells, and those are not used, sometimes used as a part of a transplant regimen. We've done that here, but also in isolation without requiring a stem cell rescue. And I think that that is not outside of the realm of possibilities for the CD38 approach as well. Uh, This just... uh, 
using having the stem cells and some research studies have actually been designed where you just have those stem cells you don't necessarily use them but at least they're in the bank so that if you see that you need to give them in order to rescue the bone marrow that they're there mm-hmm. does that make sense so that you know and and i can envision that as well as a as a trial design whereby one would give the uh, would at least have those cells in reserve if you need them mm-hmm and let me ask this question because I know is when you say the word radiation or radioimmunotherapy, it's that's a combination. But the word radiation sometimes I mean I even get nervous going into my PET scans <laughs> when sure. you know, like I get the shot. So can you talk about the dose of radiation and how you determine that and if there are any other things that people need to be concerned about or not concerned about? Sure, absolutely. I think we are very uh, sensitive as well to uh, concerns about radiation exposure and how we administer uh, the radiation that we that we use. Um, and I think it's reasonable for folks to be concerned about radiation exposure in general, radiation from CT scans, um, even from uh, you know standard uh, X-rays although that relative radiation from the x-ray is very low, in fact. Um, you see people, nonetheless, the, the, when you get your dental x-ray, the, the staff step out of the yeah. room, and I think that's because for them, we're talking about maybe hundreds and hundreds of exposures cumulatively. Um, but, uh, but so I think that uh, with respect to, uh, we have a lot of respect for the, the power of the radiation that we use, but we also recognize that the way that we are administering it, there are different types of radiation. So external beam radiation, uh, which delivers radiation from outside of the body and, and beams it in in a, in a focused way, um, still exposes more of uh, you know, the body and tissues to the radiation, just, just the tissues even in the path of that radiation as it's passing through the skin, et cetera, towards the target tumor cells. Um, the type of radiation there is different. That, 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 that uh, uh, approach uh, is very different from the way that we're delivering the radiation and the type of radiation we're delivering. You know, and as I mentioned before, yttrium-90 that we use, which is what's called a pure beta emitter. So it emits beta energy, beta radiation, over a very short distance. Um, and and that's important because uh, it means that that radiation, unless it's in direct contact with something like the target cells that we're uh, speaking of, it doesn't do any more distant damage. Now, it still goes into circulation, and while it's in the circulation, yes, the body is exposed uh, to, to that radiation, but we actually uh, have designed specific approaches to protect uh, and to try to improve our ability to to protect and reduce exposure of the rest of the body to the radiation. I can also tell you that because now we've been doing this for years, many years, since the 1980s with l- patients with lymphoma, um, we've looked very closely at what are the complication risks. The, one of the big concerns with radiation is a risk for secondary cancers of the blood and bone marrow, particularly mm-hmm developing something called MDS, myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a precursor to leukemia. Now, even when we give very high doses of the radioimmunotherapy for a stem cell transplant, and then we give much 
bigger doses than the doses that are recommended for the uh, the FDA-approved agents not used for transplant. But when we give those uh, much higher doses, the incidence of secondary complications in the bone marrow, right where we're delivering that radiation mm-hmm. to, is is very low. Some groups have reported an increased risk, and I think there may be a small increased risk of secondary uh, cancers or leukemias. But that has to be viewed in the bigger context of the overall survival of these patients. So when one looks at how they are doing long term and the percentage of patients who are treated effectively or cured from this approach, the benefit is still there, meaning that there may be some uh, low-level risk Mm -hmm. of a second cancer, sort of like the concern with Revomid, let's say, in myeloma, where there's some concern about a low-level risk, especially if one's had melphalan in the past from Revomid causing a second cancer. Um, But if you look at the overall survival data for, for patients, they're still doing better on Revomid than not on it mm-hmm. uh, for everyone. So unless we can pick who is at the highest risk for, for getting a second uh, uh, cancer of the blood and bone marrow, uh, for an individual walking in the door, uh, benefits outweigh the risks. And those risks for radioimmunotherapy really have been uh, very low. Uh, we've actually had a hard time teasing out, is it really the radiation therapy or is it the other prior treatments that also predispose people to getting a, uh, a secondary cancer um, that, that is the root cause? So I won't say that there's uh, no added risk from the radiation using this approach, but it's different from the X-ray radiation that you re- that folks receive from a CT scan or an X-ray. It's targeted, it's delivered uh, locally. And uh, I think the other important thing to address your question, how we do this um, Mm -hmm. to to protect other organs, we use something called dosimetry, which, uh, so we give a test dose. Before we give that yttrium 90 that I'm talking about, that's the therapy dose, we actually give a surrogate radioactive particle that doesn't do any damage to uh, organs or tissues, but we can see it on on something called a gamma camera. So we attach that to the antibody first, and usually a couple weeks before we give the therapy dose, we give the same antibody but labeled with something called indium-111, which is the uh, which is a uh, gamma emitting, so not the beta emitter that has this high energy that kills the cells, but a gamma emitting radionuclide that we trace label on the antibody and we inject basically just to follow where is it going to. So we can see where it is with a camera, uh, and you know it's sort of like a PET scan, if you will, or some of the other scan, imaging scans that we do. But this one is directly attached to the same antibody we would use later on with the therapy step to make sure that we're not delivering too much of it to the wrong place, i.e., if it's all getting caught up in the liver or the lungs or somewhere else, then a, a patient wouldn't be a candidate for the treatment. More likely, though... Uh, almost always that's not the case, but rather it just lets us know how much is going to each of those sites. And then, based on a, a, a huge wealth of experience that we have historically, we can calculate what the maximum dose we can give when we give the therapy step because we know how much is going to get there you know, from, that, from the dosimetry 
imaging step, how much will, let's say, will be in the liver, and we can then calculate, okay, when we give the treatment dose, this is the maximum amount we can give. We know if we gave more than that, it might be damaging to the liver. So the liver may be, you know, may define what we call the dose-limiting organ, and once we know how much is going to go there two weeks later, we can then determine what dose we're going to give of radiation two weeks later so that we're underneath the level that would do damage to those organs. Mm-hmm. So we spend a lot of time focused on ensuring that we're not going to be uh, delivering too much dose to normal structures. I can't tell you that that means 100% of the time there's no uh, toxicity to those organs. I can tell you that we're very good at limiting uh, limiting that risk and that we you know, take that very seriously. Well, I think that's really helpful for you to clarify because when you hear the word radiation, you just picture you know, old-school radiation. And sure. that's just what you imagine. So I think it's very helpful for you to describe it in more detail. So when you sure. talk no, about that this, right. is, yeah, this has been used in other cancers like leukemias and lymphomas, what phase is this in your study in myeloma? Is this something that's really early? Is this, is this something you've been working on for quite a while? Yeah, so we've been focused on this, you know, and and as I mentioned before, identifying the target, going through all these processes and steps to make sure we're looking at the right right target in the right way. And we've been doing that now for about five years, four to five, yeah, five years actually. So, um, and and has made a lot of uh, progress. As you mentioned, I think in the beginning, we just published some of this data in the journal Cancer Research, showing how effectively in what we call preclinical models, frankly, this is in in animal mouse models of uh, myeloma, where we can eradicate the myeloma cells in a significant proportion uh, of of the uh, treated animals. Um, And so we are continuing now to further uh, look at different myeloma models to to demonstrate the effectiveness of this. We don't do that because we're, we're to you know because we in any way want to slow down getting this to patients, but rather quite the opposite. Um, in order to go through all the regulatory processes to get this kind of approach to patients, it requires uh, you know convincing folks that this is uh, an effective uh, effective approach. But I think we're 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 definitely making. Uh, good headway on that front, uh, and we're at a place now where we would at, begin to start considering how we can produce adequate amounts of the antibody and the uh, uh, specific reagents or or, or steps uh, to administer to the patient to patients safely for a clinical trial. But those uh, those things, uh, you know, in order to produce something and have it be available takes a huge amount, uh, not just of time, which is what we're putting into this actually, but also mm-hmm. of resource and funding to, in order to produce what's you know, considered good manufacturing product grade, clinical grade agents that we can then uh, deliver to patients. We have a facility here. We actually produce our own uh, agents here at the Fred Hutch that we can administer to patients, which is a huge uh, blessing to us so that we can actually produce things that we can give to patients here uh, uh, at the center. But it does, uh, you know, for us to be able to do that, next steps will really be securing adequate 
uh, funding support to to produce these things. So you're, um, I'm not sure how you say it, yttrium? Why yttrium? Yttrium, yeah. 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 What phase is that in and, and what kind of patient are you looking for for that study? Well, so so that study in uh, the yttrium, the approach that I'm describing to you is not yet in a clinical uh, trial approach. Now there is oh, a clinical trial here at the center um, that uh, that we're that we're doing that does use yttrium 90 for patients with multiple myeloma, relapsed uh, refra- treatment refractory multiple myeloma. That is as part of conditioning for an allogeneic transplant, so a donor. Uh, transplant, sort of mini or non-ablative transplant, we call them. Um, That study, though, does not target the CD38 I've been talking about. It actually targets something called CD45. And CD45 is almost all, is very rarely expressed on myeloma cells. So your listeners may wonder, well, if it's very rarely expressed on myeloma cells, why are you, you know, delivering radiation to that cell? Uh, that has CD45 on it, and the reason is the crossfire that I described earlier. The whole, the purpose of that study is to take advantage of the crossfire effect, even though the myeloma cells won't have it on their surface. CD45 is expressed by many, many other cells within the bone marrow. Almost, it's called the uh, pan uh, leukocyte uh, antigen, I think. I'm, and, and it's highly expressed within the bone marrow. So it is there on the surrounding cells with the idea that you would deliver the yttrium there and those cells would be in close proximity to the myeloma cells and the radiation would get to them uh, from their neighbors. That is a study that we, we do have uh, open here and certainly in the right uh, uh, context, uh, we uh, put patients on that study, in particular patients who... Uh, have uh, relapsed treatment refractory disease uh, and an identified uh, stem cell donor, allogeneic donor. Okay, so it's it's kind of like using a portion of it, but your research with the CD38 specifically is still a little early. Yeah, the CD38 research is not yet in the clinic. As you, as you probably know, and I'm sure your listeners know, there's been a lot of excitement about CD38 antibody mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. There are at least two, maybe three uh, um, pharmaceuticals that are producing uh, CD38 antibody. One of them, daratumumab, is, has been fast-tracked by the FDA uh, for approval, uh, also for relapsed uh, multiple myeloma, and I think it's very exciting. Uh, in, in fact, I think that uh, it, for, from our perspective, is proof of the principle that, that CD38 plays a role, although our approach is to pack a big extra punch with that CD38 and not just try to take advantage of the antibody alone, which tries to use the immune system basically to attack those myeloma cells, but instead we put a payload on there that uh, d- that d- that sort of delivers a, a, a extra punch. I think maybe understating it, but but delivers something that is in a targeted way designed to destroy those uh, the myeloma cells that the CD38 binds to. Um, well, but we, you're right we, that that is not yet in the clinic. Our hope is to. to to get it there and really as, as as fast as we can. Well, I'm not a very violent person, but I like words like destroy my little cells. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I feel the same way. 
So when you look at a patient who expresses CD38 and you're targeting that, do you look at anyone's, um, the other genetic or genomic factors for that patient profile, or it's just too early to try to do that yet? Um, well, I think it's a great question. I, I think that we do not, we do not, in terms of selecting uh, which patients would be appropriate for this kind of therapy, um, we, we do not make that uh, distinction based, let's say, on high risk versus standard risk cytogenetics. There does not appear to be, as far as I'm aware, any uh, big uh, difference. There's been some uh, data in the literature which suggests that that patients with higher risk myeloma actually may express more CD38. And if that's the case, I guess you could think that might be a good thing from the perspective of those are higher risk uh, patients and maybe there's more target on them. So this may be particularly beneficial in that setting. I can tell you one thing that we do know about radiation and high risk cytogenetics Way back in the beginning, I mentioned those plasma cytoma, the collection of plasma cells outside of the bone marrow that we can cure with radiation. And they've gone back and looked to see what about higher risk cytogenetics in those myeloma cells? Uh, do they respond less well to radiation, just like they respond less well often to other therapies uh, than standard risk cytogenetics? And at least uh, so far, and there's limited data, but the published literature on that point suggests that no, they're every bit as sensitive uh, to the radiation uh, as are the cells from, you know, from with, without the abnormal uh, cytogenetic findings. So that's encouraging to us, suggesting that maybe we can, by delivering radiation to those cells, it, so it, 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 it it doesn't pick and choose or it doesn't, you know, the radiation is delivered to the mm -hmm. cell uh, and independent of whatever's going on in that cell's DNA and nucleus. Uh, and we're hopeful that that might let us overcome some of the limitations uh, related to, to the cytogenetics, the high-risk cytogenetics that limit the effectiveness of other treatments. Well, maybe you want to talk about high risk for a minute because on our interview with Dr. Von Ray from UAMS, he was saying this is really the group that, might need the most attention, so maybe you can touch on just where we're making progress for high-risk disease. Sure, absolutely, and 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 we are making progress, uh, definitely with high-risk disease. Pro I think the most exciting findings in recent years has been the the data from the Hovon uh, group, where they showed really for the first time a significant impact from novel therapies uh, on patients with high-risk cytogenetics, in particular. Uh, the deletion 17 or P53 subgroup, which is uh, probably the highest or amongst the very highest risk group of patients in terms of a cytogenetic finding, uh, and demonstrating that the, uh, the use of bortezomib, proteasome inhibitors, in particular bortezomib, both upfront and then as part of maintenance after a stem cell transplant, significantly improved response rates and survival rates among those patients. Now, it wasn't a huge number of patients, but I think we're seeing clinically, myself and my colleagues, that yes, in fact, uh, the uh, proteasome inhibitors can be uh, play a very important role for those patients and overcome some of the down of the negative uh, uh, side or the, or the increased risk that we've seen historically with the cytogenetics. The same is true for 414 
translocation. We know that that translocation is historically uh, generally considered high risk. There's some uh, there's kind of an intermediate risk category in, among patients who don't have anemia when they present and have 414, and it gets into some complexities, but it's generally considered to be a high-risk uh, finding, and yet those uh, myeloma cells are also very responsive to the proteasome inhibitors. And now not only bortezomib, but also carfilzomib being available, we don't have as much data on that, but I think that there is uh, reason to be optimistic that carfilzomib as well will have uh, enhanced uh, effectiveness with uh, with high risk disease. So, I think that's one uh, that's one place where certainly we're uh, uh, having some advances, and uh, I think there's probably going to be more to come in that regard. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's nice to see those approaches, especially the monoclonal antibody approaches, start coming out. It's it's really wonderful. <laughs> As a patient, yeah, I, I see so much being developed. Yeah, and 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 on the monoclonal antibody, you know, this there there has been a there have been dramatic advances in that uh, approach, not only in myeloma but other cancers of the blood and bone marrow, but in myeloma, as I mentioned, you know, the CD38 antibodies. There's also uh, elotuzumab, uh, which is also you know the the anti uh, CS1, a different marker on the surface of uh, myeloma cells that is, uh, you know, looks to be quite effective when combined with Revlimid. So I think that that immunotherapies are very exciting. And frankly, the other advantage to them is they have very, they have limited toxicity. Patients don't have the Mm -hmm. same toxicity from this approach that they do from lots of other uh, chemotherapy approaches. So it's definitely promising. I, I, I also just want to tell you just in brief that the, there's another step to the, you know, I described this approach that we take with CD38 and attaching the radioactive uh, molecule to it, and, mm-hmm. uh, but, our, but our most effective approach has actually been, uh, and, and bear with me because it's going to take a second to explain this, but we actually administer the antibody against CD38 without the radioactive molecule on it. But first we prepare that antibody. We change it a little bit by tagging it with something uh, which is which is called streptavidin, a naturally occurring uh, substance. Actually, avidin is found in egg whites, uh, mm-hmm. and we and we attach streptavidin to the antibody, and then we inject the antibody and we let it distribute to those myeloma cells. But it's going there with no radiation involved, right? So it's just it allows that window of time where the antibody travels through your system and binds specifically to the target site no radiation step, no exposure of any normal organs, the rest of the body to the radiation. And usually that takes about 24 hours. We've studied this extensively. So it takes 24 hours to distribute, and it goes there. Next, we administer another agent that clears from the blood any of the antibody that doesn't bind. It doesn't pull it off the target cells, but if it's still sitting around in the blood, we call it the excess amount of the antibody, it clears it, removes it out through the liver, so it's gone. So now we've primed the myeloma cells with the antibody, with that little streptavidin molecule sitting there. The reason we do that is that allows us to let it distribute slowly, and only then do we deliver a very, very small molecule, biotin, connected to the yttrium-90 radioactive molecule. That is so tiny that it can penetrate throughout the body and distribute to those target sites within minutes. So now it quickly 
goes to and binds onto the antibody streptavidin that's on the myeloma cells. Any of the radioactive molecule that doesn't do that is cleared out through the urinary system within 30 minutes. That way, there's no prolonged exposure to the rest of the body of the radiation. It's gone within 30 minutes. It's either binding specifically to the target sites or it's gone. And we've been able to show that we can deliver much more radiation safely that way because the rest of the body isn't being exposed in signif to significant degree to that radiation. Um, that's called pre-targeting, and that's a pre-targeted radioimmunotherapy. And it's a major focus of ours because it lets us give more radiation in a targeted, specific way just to the myeloma cells. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful <laughs> to be able to target specifically, not affect other things going on in your body. That's ideal. Yeah, exactly. Okay, it's, I, it, it, it's, uh, yeah. it's the stuff of when I was a kid, it's the kind of thing where I would sort of muse about these kind of things and say, boy, that's science fiction-y uh, mm -hmm. kind of thing to do, and yet we are able to and can effectively do it. Now, I know we're running out of time, so I want to be quick with some of my last sure. questions. But, sure. Um, so we can have time for caller questions as well. We were talking on another one of the shows, and one of the researchers was telling us that waiting until the end when you have no other options is really not a good time to be joining a clinical trial. So can you share with us your opinion of when is the best time to join a clinical trial? Uh, absolutely. And I, and, and I think that, uh, you know, it's, in some ways it's complex, in some ways it's simple. The, my, my short answer is that there is no bad time to join a clinical trial. For some clinical trials, it's appropriate once all other options have been exhausted. And those would be things like phase one trials where they're trying to determine what the best dose is and nobody knows if the therapy is necessarily going to work. But but uh, as an individual patient, one might say, well, gee, this is something new. They're trying to initially learn about it. Maybe it will work for me. And uh, and that kind of phase one trial for relapsed refractory disease, nothing else has worked, is entirely appropriate. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are certainly trials that are available for patients up front, early, at the beginning or after diagnosis, uh, perhaps transplant trials, perhaps trials for patients uh, who have tried one therapy and it's not working, and, or one or two, and now need uh, something else to, to, to be more effective. Uh, those can be phase one, more often phase two or phase three uh, uh, clinical trials. Um, but I think that it is vitally important for patients to be aware of some uh, factors. Number one is uh, that all of these trials have to go through a very uh, a process of close scrutiny uh, in terms of making sure that patients are not being offered something that is below the standard of care. In other words, if we know something works well and it's a standard of care, you should not be asked to and you shouldn't you know, be involved in a study that doesn't give you the standard of care plus something else. In other words, you wouldn't want to come in at the beginning and get a treatment that nobody knows if it works very well or not while we know we have effective therapies uh, from the get-go. And so that, I think sometimes there's a misconception that that might be out there, but that is not the approach of these clinical trials. The approach might be, we'll give you the standard therapy plus this other agent, 
or in cases, let's say, where patients have high-risk cytogenetics or some finding where we know nothing is working particularly well, there isn't a good standard of care, that might be a place where a new uh, agent is reasonable to try. But I agree with the assessment that waiting to be involved in a clinical trial after all other you know, options have been exhausted doesn't really help to answer all of the questions that we have about can we do things better? Can we improve outcomes for each individual patient, but also for the for the future? Um, and there's some benefits to being in clinical trials in terms of close scrutiny, uh, being watched closely, in terms of being uh, aware of and uh, having the opportunity to get a new treatment, being aware of new treatments that are coming along. Um, so, you know, often the trials will say there, there's no promise of a benefit to the individual, and that's true. The whole reason we're doing the trials, we don't know. There may be some scientific, there is a scientific basis for these trials rooted in, in, in experience and other prior studies, but we don't know for certain that it's going to, uh, that any individual trial is definitely going to work. Otherwise, of course, it wouldn't be a trial. Um, but the, uh, the, so there's an advantage to the field. There can be advantage to individuals uh, enrolling in, in these studies. And I think, as you mentioned before, often patients feel, well, yeah, I, I do want to, you know, 75% of patients say, yeah, I want to, to be enrolled, but only 5% of patients are. And I think there's some disconnect there. Perhaps also, I think patients sometimes worry that if they agree to a clinical trial, that they're committing themselves to it without an opportunity to get out of it. And, and really, nothing could be further from the truth, which is to say, and for any individual, you can sign up for a clinical trial, and if for any reason you decide, hey, I'm not going to do this trial, you know, I don't like the side effects, I changed my mind, any, any number of reasons, it, it, you're not signing a lease for a house or a car or anything along mm -hmm. those lines. You have the power and the right to say, done, I don't want this. Instead, give me this other, you know, treatment. Yeah. That's what I prefer. I think that's important for folks to to be aware of. Oh, it's very important. And you once you know that, you can be an empowering patient and make Absolutely. good choices about your care. Okay, well, Absolutely. I, I have... Uh -huh. oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I, I have taken a lot of time, and I want to open it up because we have some caller questions. So sure. um, if you have a question for Dr. Green, you can press... Uh, you can dial 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. Okay, so we have a caller at um, phone number 4003656. Go ahead. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. Sure. Um, I, my question is, has radioimmunotherapy been used for leukemia or lymphoma? Uh, yes, it, it has. We use it for uh, leukemia and lymphoma, in fact, and... Uh, Again, in, in, in the case of uh, lymphoma, there are two FDA-approved agents, actually Bexar and Zevalin. Uh, actually, now just Zevalin, I think, is commercially available. Um, but it is used uh, for both of those diseases, and, with, and we've had lots of experience here in Seattle and other places as well using that approach. And maybe I can ask a follow-up question to that. Is it just used for allogeneic transplant patients, or is it used for autologous also? It has been used for both. Most patients with leukemia in general uh, undergo allogeneic transplant because, unfortunately, autologous transplants aren't really uh, uh, sufficient for leukemias to be effective. But in lymphoma, it, is, it has certainly been used for autologous transplants with a, uh, uh, 
excellent uh, rate of response and cure rate using the radioimmunotherapy as part of the transplant conditioning, uh, and also in uh, uh, in uh, well, I think remind me again. Your question was whether it's used for was that your question for auto and allo transplants or uh huh right uh huh yeah so so yes. Well, thank you so much, Doctor, for your time and for answering my question. Sure, certainly. Okay, we have another caller at 557-6827. Okay, please go ahead with your question. Uh, Dr. Green, thank you. Thanks so much for for taking my call. I just want to know if, uh, you know, being diagnosed is pretty overwhelming, and I just want to know how does someone who's just been diagnosed find um, a clinical trial that is right for them? Well, I think that is a terrific question as well, and in part uh, there is a uh, geographic component. And, and, and let me start by saying I know that it's a lot to face and deal with. It. Uh, there's so much information that one has to try to assimilate at the time of their uh, diagnosis, but I also want to tell you that the prospects for patients with myeloma really have never been brighter and, and the advances have really made a huge difference in terms of our ability to to project for patients a much uh, a much better course and 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 so we're doing great in that regard and I think we're just going to keep doing better and that should give you hope um, in terms of finding a clinical trial um, I think it's important uh, to, a couple things need to be taken into consideration. It really depends on where you live and what's close to you. Most often clinical trials or the largest number are usually available at academic centers. So if you live near a academic center, university, or uh, affiliated center, those may be the best places to find out about clinical trial options. There is also online uh, a, uh, a, a route by which you can find out about all the clinical trials, you know, that are available uh, nationally, uh, and um, you know we can probably work to get you information on how to get to that. Jenny, I don't know if you have uh, links to the clinical trials uh, uh, site, but uh, but I imagine it wouldn't be hard for us to get you that information so that you can look at trials nationally. But it's important also to recognize that while I strongly advocate for clinical trials, I also advocate for people to uh, to live their lives and to be at home and close to their family and it is rare I tell someone to travel long long distances because often these trials require you know frequent check-ins blood draws etc um, so it's important to try to find trials that are close to you for the most part um, let's say outside of a stem cell transport plant where one may have to travel but if it's an ongoing kind of trial uh, looking close makes a lot of sense, and probably the best place to start is at a, uh, the closest academic uh, medical center. Um, there are other trials for U.S. oncology, other private uh, groups, but the largest collection are usually at the academic centers. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Green. Sure. Do you live somewhere? If you, I don't know if you want to say where. I might be able to tell you where it's close to you, but... Uh, there's quite, uh, quite a bit of uh, places locally that I can... Find, I believe. Sure. So yeah, I think it makes sense to kind of look around at those places, and sometimes it makes sense to to call them and ask at a number of places what kind of trials do you have available, and make sure they give you the information about the trial to read through, so you get a sense of what sounds reasonable to you. Definitely. Thank you. Sure. 
Okay, we have time for one more caller, so we will add one. Okay, caller, please go ahead. Well, hi. Uh, thanks for taking the call, Jenny and Dr. Green. Dr. Green, I, I first heard about you from Nancy Kaufman at the Moore Foundation. And, yeah, Nancy's uh, terrific, and so is the Moore Foundation. Yeah, they are. They are. We've um, we've been out to their fundraisers uh, for a couple of years now. Um, question I have, well, I have several, but I don't. I was told not to take much time because <laughs> we, we're we're short. So the question that I have, a friend of mine has, um, he has been diagnosed um, with myeloma. He did a tra- tandem transplant. Um, it didn't. He was in remission a short period of time, and now he's fallen out. So when he went to look for medical trials, and he's actively looking for a trial, the feedback that came, that came was, well, you've, you've fallen out of a tandem transplant after a year, so you don't really qualify for anything. So the only thing you can do is a, is a third-party stem cell transplant. And uh, I'm just curious if you have any other ideas, because that seems I, – I thought that would be the point where you would actually – He's not, he's not refractory to anything, so why wouldn't he qualify for medical tri- a typical medical trial? Or, uh, and I don't, I don't know all the details of the situation, but it just seemed kind of odd that the only, thing that, the only option that they're giving him, and, and these are really you know, distinguished medical centers, so I'm not going to say their name. The sure. Is, you know, third, third-party transplant is the only thing you can do right now. Yeah. Um, so so I, in in fact, I would say that, that we we have trials here that are available to patients who have had prior uh autologous transplants, even two transplants. Some trials do not uh, uh accept those patients uh, onto the trial, but that's certainly not the case for all the clinical trials um and in fact, some of the ones I mentioned, like the one with the third party transplant that you mentioned uh the one that we're doing here using atrium ninety uh, against CD45, that's open to patients who've had prior transplants. But we, prior autologous transplants like you're uh, describing, or ta- tandem transplants, and we have other trials as well. There are fewer of them, but there definitely are uh, a fair number. So it may be worth looking uh, further into that um, as as an option. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think I... Uh, 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 the, in, in answer to the question about the responses, you know, the, the reason perhaps some of those trials uh, are not available to your friend, in, and, and I'm not saying I agree with this, is because uh, if the disease comes back shortly after the uh, second, let's say, autologous transplant, then prognostically that is, you know, worse than not obvious, sort of an obvious point than if that uh, were not the case. And so in some of these studies, they're designed first to ask the question, uh, amongst patients, let's say, who aren't the very highest risk of progressing. And again, I'm not uh, siding yeah, with that a, uh, a high, perspective. Yeah, because a high risk, you know, that, that could hurt their, their the, the, the trial, um, and I understand that. So, yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. and it's, it, it may not even be as, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, to give them uh, uh, sort of fair benefit of the doubt, I, I'm, I, it, 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 sometimes it's not so much that they are uh, trying to exclude or make their data look better because they have to report who they put onto these trials, but uh, but rather are are first trying to answer the question to a group of patients who have, you know, a uh, the 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 best likelihood of uh, doing okay for longer rather than a shorter period of time, so they can follow those patients out and look, you know, and tease out responses 
uh, etc. But again, I'm not endorsing that approach. And I would say, I think that your friends should keep looking because there are such trials, uh, and we do have some here. And you know, I'd be happy to to uh, you know offline. We could follow up and and uh, look at that, or you could advise your I, friend to will, to get in touch send, with us. I will send uh, an email to Jenny at Crowdcare and uh, and send the name along, so maybe she can make the introduction to you. Sure, that's fine. And also, and, and, and if Jenny doesn't want to be in the middle of it, Nancy Kaufman as well, I'd be happy to, you know, okay. however you want to do that is fine with me. All right, thank you very much. Sure thing. All right, bye. Take care. Well, Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very grateful that you're working towards a cure. And um, we are grateful that you're doing amazing work and for looking at completely new approaches for myeloma. We're just thrilled. So thank well, you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you and to the callers. And, you know, I, uh, I think we all share the same goal, which is curing this disease and, uh, and doing everything that we can to, to find new and effective approaches to do it safely and, and uh, improve everyone's quality of life. Well, absolutely. Thank you very much. Sure thing. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next Patient Radio interview as we learn more about how we as patients can help drive to a cure by joining clinical trials. 